0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gadigal people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present.
1: When we started Archie, which was like seven and a half years ago now, there were 24 distilleries in Australia, and I think there's now over 400. So just in that seven-year period, it's just absolutely exploded, which is fantastic to see, and there's a lot of really high-quality stuff being made out there. I think in the next five years, as a lot of those whiskies come online, we're going to see some brilliant, brilliant spirits coming out of Australia. This is
0: the Over the Glass podcast. I'm Shantae Whale. Harriet Lee is Head of Hospitality at Archie Rose Distilling Company based in Rosebery, Sydney. Much more than that, she is a leader and authority in all things drinks in Sydney's beverage scene. Her contribution to the drinks trade is nothing short of remarkable and I'm looking forward to hearing more from her. Hello Harriet, thanks for joining me. Hi. The last time we spoke at length we were discussing uh, sex toys and sculptures at Faro Bar in Mona. It's been too long between drinks, how the hell are you?
1: Absolutely do not remember that, but it sounds very plausible and very well. It's been far too long between drinks.
0: <laughs> it's probably a good thing that you don't remember. I was having a great time though.
1: <laughs> now, Harry,
0: you, um, you were born in London, uh, which we can tell by your gorgeous accent, but can you give us a little insight into how you found your way to Australia and then kind of into the beverage industry?
1: Yeah, so my mum's Australian, so I'm a bit of a mongrel. Um, And when I was four, I decided I was going to move to Australia when I grew up because we came on a holiday here. And I realised, because I'm no fool, that Australia is paradise compared to the UK. And so when I turned 18, I did just that. And I'd worked in pubs back in the UK when I left school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, which I think is a lot of people who end up in hospitality. They just sort of start that way. Uh, And then I fell in love with it. I fell in love with serving people in bars. Wow. And then how old were you when you came out here? So I probably, I saved up for 18 months after finishing school. So I was about 20.
0: Wow. And now I hear this funny uh, little snippet of you being forced into child labor and serving drinks to your family. What's that all about?
1: I think that if you have children, you know, you're missing a trick if you don't get them doing general acts of service around the house. And so for my parents, that was topping up the drinks or uh, you know, serving at a party. So I'd always be walking around topping up people's wines and things. And I think I learned how to open champagne at a very early age. Uh, my parents are both good time people. So, yeah, I think if you have kids, it's only smart to get them get them working.
0: <laughs> they sound like great people.
1: <laughs> yeah, they are.
0: When you headed into Australia, where was the first kind of places that you worked? Uh, there's been some a couple of places I'd love to speak about. Um, but can you give us a little idea of, of where you found yourself uh, when you first landed?
1: Yeah, my first job was at the Hollywood Hotel, which is in Surrey Hills and still going strong. It recently sold. So that was 20 years after I first started working there. Um, But the new owners are keeping up the the vibe of the place, which is really good to hear. And something of a miracle in the Australian hospitality or pub landscape, certainly in Sydney rather than the rest of Australia. But we don't have a great uh, history of uh, treating our heritage r- with respect when it comes to pubs, um, but thankfully the new owners appreciate the, the beauty that is the Hollywood Hotel.
0: Yeah, I, I really wanted to touch on that because the proprietor and publican of the Hollywood Hotel was Doris Goddard, um, actress, cabaret performer, activist. She's described as a diva and icon. Can you please tell us a little bit about what was your experience working with her and how would you sum her up and, like, what did you learn from her?
1: Doris was amazing. I mean, Doris died a couple of years ago now, and her funeral was heaving uh, hundreds of people from all ages. You know, even up until her 90s, she was sitting at the bar regaling people with, you know, old stories of Hollywood, even though she actually never went to Hollywood. She filmed all of her films in in the UK, but, you know, she never let, let the truth get in the way of a good story. But she was amazing, and she taught me so much about about serving people. And she was a very sort of egalitarian publican. She believed she was one of the first people to select women in the front bar, um, where it was a little bit cheaper to drink. And obviously, because she was a female business owner, you know, turning over pretty impressive money even even back then. And um, she believed that everyone had the right to a beer at the end of the day. And she's was well, she was a wonderful woman, really, really wonderful.
0: What, uh, what can you give me a story or something that that was about that kind of summed her up in terms of like, what 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 was her personality like?
1: Well, she was a performer, right? Like she travelled. I mean, if you think about this, like in the fifties and sixties, she was travelling throughout Southeast Asia and to China, and then through Europe and to England, where she ended up spending quite a few years. But she sort of started as a cabaret singer, so she would come down in the most incredible outfits and wigs. <laughs> And she, she used to come down to the pub dressed in, like, you know, an amazing silk outfit at 10 o'clock in the morning and have a couple of glasses of wine with some, you know, night workers who'd just knocked off. And then she'd go upstairs and come down in a completely different outfit at four o'clock. And then, you know, in her earlier years, like up until probably mid-80s, she would sing at the Hollywood quite a lot. Often if there was a band on stage and she decided that she wasn't getting enough attention, she'd go up and just, excuse me, tap on the musician's shoulder and say, I think you've had enough time now. Get up and start start playing songs. But she was, um, yeah, an amazing performer. I remember one time someone came in wearing this incredible outfit and Doris thought this was outrageous that she was being upstaged by someone, so she left and came back down wearing a gold sari with this, like, 10-metre-long train trailing behind her and then finally sort of, you know, had regained the position of, first lady of the room so didn't like to be upstaged but she also was yeah like you said an activist she was uh the president of the australian hotels association which is a very powerful lobby in new south wales and i think was responsible for quite a lot of legislation in the 80s and she used to negotiate with the police she also used to go and watch drugs get burnt at the police station because she was a jp which i think is hilarious because doris She was an asthmatic, never smoked a cigarette, let alone a joint or any other drugs. You know, she'd never taken anything in her life. And so the thought of her going along in her 70s, to watch the police say, you know, this is four kilos of, of heroin going into the into the kiln, and she'd go, yep, so it is, and sign off that it had been destroyed. And you thought, really, is this how we destroy drugs in Australia? Doris goes and watches it happen. I mean, gosh, how lucky
0: to have um, someone like that in your life and be able to recall some of those stories. After you moved on from H- Hotel Hollywood, you went to Melt Nightclub in King's Cross. What was your everyday life like at Melt and living you know, that kind of lifestyle in King's
1: Cross? The cross was just, you know, a crazy part of Sydney back then. I think it's, you know, it's been cleaned up a lot, but uh, the cross has been dodgy for 100 years at least. I remember meeting a woman who was in her 80s in Italy, and this was about 2005 or something, when I was just at my tail end of um, the Hollywood going up to Mount And uh, this woman said, oh my God, I used to work in the cross. Is the easy greasy still there? And she'd been there in the forties and she was on roller skates, delivering burgers to people. And then, you know, they were open till all night, all hours as well. But the cross has now been somewhat gentrified, unfortunately, but yeah, it was, it was a a very real, very fun time of my life. I remember I lived on Kellett street as well as working on Kellett street. And I remember getting home one day at five o'clock in the morning after finishing work. And, stepping over someone who'd OD'd on my doorstep and then walking into my flat like nothing had happened and then sitting down and going, Oh, that's you've just lost some part of your humanity now. Like I had to I had to leave the cross because it was just such a yeah, inner city urban lifestyle. But I mean I loved it. And Melt was wonderful. We had live music every night of the week and we were open till stupid o'clock, I mean three o'clock. And then sometimes we'd shut the doors and keep going for a little bit longer. I can say that now because the guys are no longer in business. But uh, all of the musicians in Sydney used to come after their gigs and, and jam together till all hours. So it was a it was such a cool venue. I mean, unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of places like that anymore.
0: Yeah, all their businesses are still open and they can't actually say that out loud.
1: <laughs> <laughs> True. But, like, I don't know. It's been a while. No, I have had the odd lock-in recently. But, like, I don't think there's many places where – where musicians get to play together after after their gigs, you know, because very few places are open that late, you know, that have decent sound systems and things and have owners that are willing to do it. So I mean I feel sorry really for kids today because they don't have they don't have so much CD underground life, you know, and I think it's quite an important part of being eighteen to twenty five is is relishing in that, you know, you have to go to sort of Berlin or London or New York or something to really encounter it now. I think it's sort of a pity.
0: Yeah, I think so. It definitely shapes you. Um, hospitality is such a industry where you you fall in love with the adrenaline and it's a lot of fun. Is there a moment that you really realised or that you, this is what you wanted to do and that this was the craft that you really wanted to dedicate yourself to?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely at the Hollywood because I remember looking at opening my own venue just after that. So, I mean, I couldn't afford it at the time, but I did look at a few spaces. And I just remember, I think it was Blister in the Sun playing at two o'clock in the morning and the whole of the pub singing and dancing on tables and thinking, this is just the most magic part of everyone else's week. You know, they work Monday to Friday to get to Saturday night so that they can enjoy this. And I get to do it every day. And I just thought, you know, what a wonderful magical life. And I think that that just continues in hospitality, but you probably just find slightly you know, tame with venues as you get older and a bit more sore and a bit deafer. You know, <laughs> and I just started really getting into spirits that melt and cocktails. I mean, my first cocktail list was horrific, but, you know, it was 20 or 15 years ago now. But, yeah, getting really into the sort of craft of making drinks as well as just giving people a good time. And I've just followed that all the way through now with Archie Rose to helping people make spirits, which is lots and lots of fun.
0: Yeah, well, come full circle. I mean, you did even open your own venue, is that correct, Um, back in the UK?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was sort of emotionally blackmailed by my family to do that. But my brother is a a very good chef and uh, he wanted to open a business and my parents were going to help him do that. And they said, but, you know, there's no way he can do the front of house stuff. So if you come home for a year and help him get it open, then we'll help him financially. And so I naively sort of said, okay, well, I'll do six months to a year and get it all open. But that turned into, I think four or five years that I was back in the UK running it because we opened just before the GFC, which wasn't such a big thing here, but in, a, in the UK was absolutely devastating, especially to fine dining restaurants in a small seaside town because people stopped having weekends away and stopped spending on lavish meals. Lots of people lost their jobs and just didn't have you know security rather than just losing their jobs. They were just, everyone was very, very nervous. And um, so yeah it took four years and eventually i was like that's enough I've, I've given you four years i'm going back to you know i think my fourth winter was what broke me and i was like that's it i'm going back to australia and then he did it for another three years and then ended up closing but yeah it's now one of the hottest towns in the uk Ramsgate. everyone's moved down from london we were about 10 years too early Ah oh, no devastating <laughs> yeah, but i wouldn't change it you know it was the most amazing learning curve I mean, the work was ferociously hard and I think anyone who's opening a business needs to be aware that the hours are just nothing like you'll do for somebody else. I think my my record number of hours was about 110 in a week and that's like, you know, getting up at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning going in because we did breakfast, lunch, dinner and then a late night bar and then worked until 3 or 4 in the morning, did the, you know, cashed up the tills and then went home and probably had four hours sleep and came back again. Mm-hmm. And that was, yeah, it was horrendously hard, but also amazingly rewarding, you know, building your own business and the things you learn, you know, from financial responsibility to, you know, the creative aspect of menus and then also serving people It is a very rewarding life, but you've got to want to live it. You know, I don't think you can be an owner operator unless it's absolutely the thing you love most in the world.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I want to touch on Archie Rose and, and your new role there. Well, not your new role, your your current role there. But what what ended up making the decision to be in Australia? What do you love about the Australian kind of beverage industry as opposed to somewhere like the UK?
1: I think we're really good at it over here. We take it really seriously. You can earn really good money doing it if you're good at what you do um, and I suppose to some degree if you're lucky. But... Um, There's just, I mean, Australians, if you think about the 80s with wine, when we started to get a real global domination period, we're doing the same thing again now with spirits. And I think it's just because whatever Australians turn their mind to, they're such hard workers and passionate people that they, you know, put a lot of effort in. And we've got natural, amazing resources here. So, of course, you know, if you combine all those things, you end up with a thriving industry. And I think the Australian spirits industry, which is absolutely going through its heyday now, uh is is testament to that when we started archie which was like seven and a half years ago now there were 24 distilleries in australia and i think there's now over 400. so just in that seven year period it's just absolutely exploded which is fantastic to see and there's a lot of really high quality stuff being made up there i think in the next five years as a lot of those whiskies come online we're going to see some brilliant brilliant spirits coming out of australia
0: Gosh, I didn't know the trajectory was actually that huge. That's amazing. And to be part of, to see and enter into Archie Rose at the start and to see where it is now, that must be incredible. But what does Headers Hospitality mean at Archie Rose? What does that entail?
1: (laughs) No no one knows. Um, So I started as venue manager and then we started doing some off-site events and then we started doing some partnerships and along that time, we also didn't have a marketing department. So I started doing like photography and content for Archie. And then now I sort of oversee all of that. So it's just sort of grown in the last seven years. And I think that that's just incredible luck on my part being there at the beginning, but also really enjoying it. And I keep putting my hands up for new things and they're always really fun. Just because I like my job, you know, I'm very, really lucky that I come to work and I'm always looking forward to what I'm doing that day. Unless it's, you know, end of financial year and I've got to do reports. But apart from that, I'm 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 into all of it. Yeah, there's always the low side to everything, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think also just the fact that there's a product at the end of the day. There's something you can hold in your hand. I can send a bottle to my mum in the UK and it's just an immense sense of pride that you've got this thing that, you know, there's now, God, I think there's like 70 or 80 of us in the company now, which is humongous because when I started there were 12 including the bar team you know it's, it's much much smaller beast back then but all of those people have put some something into that bottle whether or not it's the packaging or it's the liquid or whether they're going out on the road and giving it to people to taste you know everyone's part of that same team and everyone's equally excited to the next thing that's going to come out we all have a number on, so you know how bottles get numbered we all have our own number and everyone collects their own number so I laugh at you. at some stage I'm going to be spending more on Archie Rose products than they're paying me to be here But <laughs> as the whiskies get more expensive. But none of us would ever say no to our release. I'm
0: going to have to check out the bottles we have at Key because I don't know that.
1: <laughs> oh, well, yeah, you should. And some of the early ones might be, might be worth something in the future. There's a lot of people who hoard batch ones. So like with whiskies and things, when the first batch comes out, it's often going to be worth a bit in the future. So, the trick is you just got to hold everything because you don't know what the thing is that's going to become cultish. You know?
0: That could be problematic. I tend to drink everything I have. Um, what makes Archie Rose Distilling Company unique on the market of Australian spirits, do you think?
1: I think it's the fact that we've got a a, a big portfolio of spirits. So, we do, you know, vodka, it's far too many gins, several gins, whiskies with single malt and a rye whiskey. We've got a lot of limiteds. We've done some really weird experimental things like Archie Mite, which was distilled yeast extract spread butter and toast all three that were distilled that does taste like a certain well-known brand of um, yeast extract spread on toast uh we've just released an o de v that's made from honey so we've called it eau de b sorry about the really bad pun uh, but yeah i think the team the distilling team that's headed up by dave are really fun experimental people who are always up for a challenge so i i think that I often think about brands that only have one or two SKUs in their portfolio. It must get pretty boring because you just talk about the same thing all the time, whereas we've, we've got, I think, 24 things coming out next year. So that's a lot of stuff to talk about, write about, photograph, drink. Sounds busy. Uh, did you
0: actually say that you have far too many gins in your portfolio? Surely you don't believe that.
1: <laughs> no, I don't. I love them all. But, like, when someone comes into the bar and they say, can I have a gin and tonic, it's the start of a very long conversation as opposed to, sure, here you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's quite a few. I think we've got five on the go at the moment.
0: Talk to me about gin. What is your um, favourite experience of gin? Or when did you really have you had a gin that just absolutely blew your mind and, and changed how you feel about juniper?
1: Yeah, this is a brand spiel though, so I'm really sorry, but it's absolutely true. We've just released uh, the first gin out of our new distillery, which is in Banks Meadow. Uh, I don't know if you've been to Rosebery, but this is. 100 times the size of Rosemary. The stills are like 35,000 litres as opposed to 3,500. Um, and the, the new gin still has got a vacuum capability, which means we can distill at much lower temperatures. So, Bone Dry has got three different types of juniper distillate in it, which are distilled three different ways. And it's just the most vibrant, bright juniper expression that I've ever tasted. It's wonderful. But in terms of time and place drinking, by far the best gin and tonic I've ever had was like. I think it was even a Gordon's and Schweppes, but I was in the Kimberley and it was after my mum had had cancer and she got over it. And we all, the whole family, it's like 13 of us, the extended family, all went on this amazing trip through the Kimberley. And everyone was in charge of drinks each day. So I had one day that I was responsible for and I knew I was going to be making a gin and tonic because it genuinely is my favorite, you know, five o'clock drink. And so we went and found, you know, this like tiny little out, shop in the middle of nowhere and found some gin and some tonic and then the next day we found a bag of ice at a servo and so we had servo ice no citrus and we were standing on the mitchell plateau which is just red dust blowing all over you and it was the most refreshing drink i've ever had in my life by far
0: oh my gosh i've been dying to get to the kimberley's that's amazing
1: in the right place is an amazing gin and tonic
0: yeah, that was such. I mean, I could literally see you covered in dust just uh, with that story. That's incredible. Um, Archie Rose has an array of experiences on offer. Can you walk us through one of those and, like, in, in terms of what would a visitor expect if they drop by um, the venue?
1: So we do have, I think, like twelve experiences at the moment. But the best one by far is the gin blending. So we give you because I'm in a traditional London dry. You put all the botanicals into the still in one go and turn it on, and you produce a gin. We distill everything separately because we think it gives better control over respect for each ingredient. And that also means as a sideline that we have all of these individual distillates that people can come and play with. So people can come down and I think we have about eight on the board at one time and people can blend using a syringe different amounts of their favorite botanicals that they encounter. And then make their own gin and walk away with it, which is really fun.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of a perfumery or something like that, where you're just looking at different aromatics, and then there is such an art in blending and and getting it that right, isn't there?
1: Yeah, and that's actually where we got it from. You know, we didn't invent the idea of single distillation in perfumes. That's how they treat ingredients, and I think it's probably a little bit. I don't know if it's easier. That's probably not fair because I think if you've got a recipe, there's a lot to tweak. But I think you get much more control over each botanical and you know you can put it in different parts of the still where you've got different temperatures and vapor infusion and all that sort of stuff which means you can treat something like you know cassia which is like cinnamon which is really hardy you can go right into the belly of the beast or something you know like rose can go into the vacuum still because you don't want to stew rose petals at that really high temperature and high pressure yeah
0: amazing um You've been an advocate for, and a voice for women in hospitality. You've spoken at some amazing um, events like uh, International Women's Day. Today in 2021, what do you think the biggest challenge and misconceptions for women in this business are, in your opinion?
1: I don't know. It's such a weird question, isn't it? I've been asked it so many times. Um, <laughs> I think that there's still a lot of sexism. There's still a lot of girls can't do that job, uh, I think that you're seeing more and more women coming through into distillation, which is awesome because there is an argument that women are better at it because, you know, we have sort of higher highs and lower lows in our sensory you know, analysis and a lot of distillation isn't actually a big physical job anymore. We've had a few women work for us. We've still got Lisa who's in our distilling team, it's one-sixth of our distilling team. The national percentage of female distillers is about 4% which is incredibly low. And I think even women working for distilleries is only 15%, which is still really, really low. I think we are almost 50-50 in terms of the whole company. And as I said, one in six of our distillers is female. But hopefully we've got a new trainee female coming up the ranks. So hopefully there'll be two out of seven (laughs) next year. But it's still woeful, you know. And I think that women don't really think of it as a career opportunity. I mean, you probably know in wine that, women are definitely staking much more claim in what used to be a man's world. Um, there's a few female brewers out there doing great things and I think that people are starting to realise that it's a job that's available to everyone, even if there's still a lot of chat from some of the old boys that, that girls shouldn't be doing it. I think it's all have learnt to ignore them by now.
0: Yes, definitely block it out. <laughs> I think, I mean, with what Archie Rose does and, and those experiences, people coming down, being able to drink at the bar, seeing um, – you know, your bartenders, female bartenders, but then also having a play with that, they can kind of picture themselves going, actually, I really enjoy this. And I think that that's making a huge difference in just seeing these leaders um, doing what they do well and uh, and then thinking, hmm, maybe that's for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're an amazing leader in your industry. Um, and I think that the more women in top jobs that we see, the more Young women think that's something that's attainable to them. And that's brilliant because of course it is. Hospitality should be for absolutely anyone of any gender. It's ridiculous to think that there's certain roles within hospitality that only men can do. Or vice versa, you know, like everyone should be able to have a crack at whatever they think looks good. Also, the way the hospitality is right now, we just need more people doing the job. So (laughs) whatever your gender get into hospitality. I think everyone's desperate for staff at the moment.
0: We need to make shirts. That's what we need to do. Yeah, sure. <laughs> get in hospital. <laughs> uh, what, um, what are you excited about? What's What's on your agenda for 2022? Or what what's the next project for you?
1: So for us, it's international travel. So we were going to start launching internationally about two years ago. And I don't know if you heard about that little pandemic that happened, but that sort of put a spanner in the works. So next year we'll be. We've already just gone to New Zealand last month, and uh, we'll be launching in the UK and Asia, and that is going to be super exciting because I can't wait to do a business trip home to see my family. Put that on the company card, but also to be available in shops where my family can go and buy it. It's going to be really cool, and just that's a whole world out there. You know, we've just we've only done Australia in the last seven years, so there's an awful lot of world to get out and cover.
0: Wow, putting Archie Rose on the international map, that is going to be a huge adventure. That sounds so
1: exciting. Yeah, I can't wait to just go into a bar. I remember the first time I went to Melbourne and saw Archie Rose on a bar there and they had the whole um, set of Horosimi, which was a really old gin set that we did about five, six years ago. And I was just blown away that in this whole other city, someone had found out about our products and put it on the back bar. And now the idea that you could go into a bar in, I don't know, Singapore and see Archie Rose is going to be mind-blowing.
0: Yeah, what a moment of pride for your whole team. That would be just incredible.
1: Yeah, super cool.
0: So, Harriet, three drinks for the rest of your life. What are they going to be? We've established gin and tonics, but uh, what are the others?
1: Okay, this is such a hard question. And I also just have to say that I've, I'm have i having to think about, like, an actual location because otherwise it's just too hard. So I'm putting myself on a desert island, which is where these sorts of questions usually come up. <laughs> Otherwise, I've got like, you know, whiskey versus gin and red wine versus white wine and all those times and places and brandy for after dinner. It's just too hard. So I'm on a desert island. Obviously, I've got bone dry and I'm going to take Strange Love number eight tonic. I'm going to have to have a champagne. And if I'm paying for it, Paul Roger. But if you're paying for it, I'll take Don Perignon. Mm. And a white burgundy, probably. Yeah. Any old Premier crew would do, you know, not too picky. Oh,
0: that sounds good. And it sounds like your thirst would be quenched on that hot day.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, you know, if we're skiing, I'm scrapping all three of those are all gone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's always about time and place.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, Harriet, I hope all City Siders know how fortunate they are to have you and your contributors contribution to the industry. Archie Rose is a must visit destination and its products and offerings are a real highlight to the drinks trade. Um, Thank you for spending some time with me today. It's been such a pleasure hearing more about you. Thank you so much for having me. That was really fun. Awesome. Cheers to you, mate. Cheers to you. Thanks. Bye. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.